Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Ezra. Probably caught you by surprise with that one. The book of Ezra. We finished last Sunday our study of the life of Samuel based on 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 7. In the will of the Lord, early next year, so early 2013, we'll go back to the books of Samuel, to study the life of Saul. But for the next couple of months, we're going to hear from one of the prophets. Uh, Two years ago, if memory serves me correctly, we heard from the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, Last year, we heard from the prophet Malachi. And for the next couple of months, we're going to hear from the prophet Haggai. And so you're wondering to yourself, well, why have you asked us to turn to the book of Ezra? Well, look just quickly at chapter 5 of the book of Ezra, verse 1. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over And so who prophesied at this time? Two prophets, Zechariah, Haggai. In other words, uh, for us to understand rightly uh, the book of Haggai, uh, what Haggai declares, what the Lord has to say to us through his prophet Haggai, we have to first understand the book of Ezra. Because Haggai prophesies, he ministers in a particular that is in a specific historical context in a series of events, those events are narrated for us in this little book of Ezra. So here's what we're going to do. For the next three or four Sundays, we're going to make our way through the first four or five chapters of the book of Ezra. That sets the historical context for Haggai's ministry. Then we're going to jump over to the book of Haggai for five or six Sundays and hear from this prophet of the Lord. And then we'll come back to the book of Ezra and complete the historical narrative, having heard from the prophet Haggai. And now that I've thoroughly confused you, you can turn to chapter 1 of the book of Ezra. I think that was plain enough, wasn't it? We want to hear from Haggai. But to understand Haggai, we need to make sense of Ezra. So we're going to go through the first five chapters of Ezra for the next few Sundays. We'll have all our T's crossed, all our I's dotted, We'll know the precise context, situation, circumstances into which Haggai walks and in which Haggai ministers. And then we'll go to the book of Haggai, hear what this prophet of the Lord declares, and then come back again and set it in the context of the remainder of the book of Ezra. And so if you found Ezra, follow along as I begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests, and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out 
to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Now I'm going to spare you the content of verses 2 through 67. I would probably mispronounce most of these names, and you would probably fall asleep if I attempted to read them. Let me pause and say, though, we do believe all Scripture is God-breathed, all Scripture is sufficient, all Scripture is profitable. And in a few moments, I'm going to affirm why these verses, this list of names, is particularly profitable for us. But I don't think I need to read the list in order to accomplish that. So skip over this list of names to verse 68 of chapter 2. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Now here's where we need to begin with a, with a very obvious question. What is happening here? Uh, by that I mean what, what, what circumstances surround uh, this return of a remnant from Babylonia, the city of Babylonia, back to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, what has happened? What are the circumstances? What is the situation? What exactly is happening? If you've been here of late, you'll recall we looked at the life of Samuel. Samuel is the last of the judges in the nation of Israel. God brings his people out of that country, that land, Exodus. He settles them in the promised land, the land of Canaan. And for 300 years, Israel lives, these tribes live in the land of Canaan. And they do so directed by judges, a series of judges. Gideon, and Samson, and Deborah, culminating in Samuel. In the year 1050 B.C., we're going way back. The days of the judges ended, and a man named Saul was anointed the first king of Israel. When Saul died, he was replaced with David. When David died, he was replaced with Solomon. When Solomon died, the kingdom split, and we had a man named Jeroboam reigning in the northern kingdom, which kept the name Israel. And we had a man named Rehoboam reigning in the southern kingdom which adopted the name Judah because it was the principal tribe which constituted, made up the southern kingdom. And so the kingdom was split for a couple hundred of years almost. And then in 722, as God foretold way back at Sinai, if Israel failed to keep the covenant he made with them, Through his servant Moses, he would send them back to Egypt. Not Egypt literally, but captivity literally. And so in 722, a world empire known as Assyria sweeps down upon the northern kingdom of Israel, sacks the northern kingdom, destroys and obliterates the northern kingdom, and takes any of the survivors captive. They are displaced. They are deported to other territories, other regions. The southern kingdom is spared for a little while, about a century and a half. And in 586, God's judgment is brought to bear upon the southern kingdom as he had foretold way back at Sinai, if you do not keep my covenant, I will send you back to Egypt. Not Egypt literally, captivity literally. And the Babylonian Empire sweeps through the southern kingdom 
Jerusalem is absolutely destroyed. The temple is burned in 586 B.C., and the survivors are deported back to the city of Babylon. The Babylonian Empire falls to another empire, coming out of what we would know today as modern-day Iran, the Persian Empire. In 539 B.C., the king of this empire, he's named here in the very first verse of Ezra chapter 1, his name is Cyrus. And Cyrus issues what? A proclamation, a decree. Now, folks, this is historical. If ever you are in the city of London, England, I recommend you visit what's known as the British Museum. And if you were to enter into the British Museum and visit the British Museum, you would discover an ancient artifact discovered in what was known as the city of Babylon, discovered, I think, in 1897, known as Cyrus's Cylinder. And it's a big, long thing about yay long, uh, made of clay and covered with, this, with the, the language of the day, these writings. And essentially what it is is an account of Persia's victory over Babylon, an account of the rise of Cyrus and Cyrus's policy by which he governed this new world empire. And basically what Cyrus did was he undid everything that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire had done. And so he actually finances the rebuilding of places of worship scattered throughout his territory. He actually encourages the return of images and idols and religious artifacts to their proper owners and these places of worship. And he also encourages those who had been deported from their homelands to go back. And this is precisely what we have recorded here. This is historical. This is fact. This is verifiable outside of Scripture. Cyrus issuing this proclamation by which he permits, he even encourages the Jews, those who had been taken captive, those who had been transplanted when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, laid waste, nothing left but rubble in 586. When they had been transplanted and, and transported to Babylon, he now encourages them to go back, to rebuild their city, to rebuild their temple, and to take those vessels, things like the ark, right, the mercy seat, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, things that Nebuchadnezzar had taken, Cyrus now permits the Jews to return with these things for the rebuilding of the temple. This is his proclamation. Now, what I want us to notice, enough history, what I want us to notice are three things, three features of this proclamation. And let me give them to you right at the outset. If you've got the sermon notes handy, they're found there. They're an insert in, in, in the bulletin, in the worship guide. And you'll see there three headings in bold. And so three things I want us to notice right out of the verses we read. Uh, three features of this proclamation. The first is this. The reason. It's the first thing we're going to look at based on verse 1. The reason for Cyrus's proclamation. What's going on here? And when we've answered that question, we're going to derive a very important lesson based on Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And then the second thing we're going to look at based on this proclamation, the second feature is this, the content of Cyrus's proclamation. So what's in there? What does he say? What does he allow for? And from that, we're going to derive a very important lesson. I've summarized it by way of Isaiah 43, verse 13. The Lord is speaking, I work. And who can turn it back? And then the third thing we're going to notice about this proclamation from the fifth verse really all the way through to the end of chapter 2 is the response to Cyrus's proclamation. Three lessons here. Three extremely important lessons. Number one, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Zechariah 4.6 I know my own, and my own know me. John 10, 14. He has sent me the words of the Lord Jesus to proclaim liberty to the captives. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. So that's how we're going to proceed. You've got it all there in a nutshell, packed together. And now we're going to go back and break it down and look at each of these three features 
of Cyrus's historical proclamation whereby a remnant returned from Babylon, modern-day Iraq, traveled westward back to their homeland, their home city of Jerusalem, engaged in the reconstruction of that city, engaged in the reconstruction of the temple. And we have it all accounted for here, all recorded for us. Three things I want us to notice. The first is this, the reason for Cyrus's proclamation. This, this, is, this is interesting. This is fascinating. This is awe-inspiring. Look at the very first verse. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, now we enter into a purpose clause, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Who's Jeremiah? He's another prophet. He is a prophet who prophesied in the decades immediately preceding the Babylonian invasion, immediately preceding the destruction of the temple. What did Jeremiah prophesy? What did God declare through the instrumentality that is the prophetic ministry of Jeremiah? Simply this, the captivity would last 70 years. He mentions it at least twice in the book of Jeremiah. That yes, Babylon is coming. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar is coming. Yes, judgment and God's wrath are coming. Yes, the temple is going to be laid desolate. Not one stone will be left upon another. Yes, you are going to be deported. Unspeakable, unthinkable times are coming. But the prophecy, 70 years are appointed. 70 years of estrangement. 70 years of deportation. 70 years of captivity. Well, the 70 years are drawing to a close. And now we see a greater king than Cyrus is at work. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. In other words, so that the Lord might bring to pass precisely what he had promised. What does he do? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. And so we have, for all intents and purposes, we have a man who is probably the most powerful man on the face of the earth in his day. And we have a man who is merely a pawn in the hand of Almighty God. The Lord has a plan. The Lord has a purpose. The Lord has made a promise. Cyrus is going to issue a proclamation He is going to do so for only one reason, because God is going to stir his heart to do so. Something wonderful. Something wonderful is the book of Isaiah in many ways, but in particular one chapter, Isaiah 45, because the prophet Isaiah, he goes even further, he's even further back than Jeremiah. The prophet Isaiah ministers over a century, over a hundred years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar years before the life of Cyrus, the life and times of Cyrus. And here's an amazing thing in Isaiah 45. Isaiah actually mentions Cyrus by name. He actually names him. And hear what the Lord says through his prophet Isaiah. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Let me repeat that. Thus says, and remember, this is 120, 130 years before Cyrus is walking the face of the earth. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I name you, though you do not know me. I equip you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. And there is no other. So here we have Cyrus. After the fall of Assyria, the fall of Babylon, the advent of Persia, and the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And we have the king of kings and the lord of lords, 150 years prior to Cyrus's birth, declaring, I have grasped your right hand. I have named you though you don't even know me. I have equipped you, though you don't even know me. Why? Because the Lord is the God of heaven. 
I am the Lord, he declares, and there is no other. Now, the lesson, you already know it. It's printed there in the sermon notes from Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, I want to direct this lesson to a very specific group, and I place myself firmly planted in this group today. I want to address this lesson, point this lesson to the perplexed. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to assume there are a few people out there who are as perplexed as I am. Uh, We live in perplexing days. I, I, I look at the national scene, uh, the state of, uh, of the states, the United States, and an election is looming, an election, no understatement, that is going to set a course, a trajectory uh, for this country for decades, for generations. Uh, we, we look around at our society. We, we are witnessing in our day, uh, this isn't an exaggeration, uh, the breakdown of a family. We are witnessing a rise in antisocial behavior, in crime and and, and abortion, in in violence, in substance abuse, in pornography. Uh, We are are witnessing just this this growth of social ills and problems which are beginning to plague us nationally. And I'll confess, I'll state it publicly, it perplexes me. My perplexity is compounded as I look out at the international scene. And last year, Egypt and, uh, and Libya, revolutions, right? And now the president of Syria is in the news. The president of Iran is constantly in the news. And, and, we, and we are, we are live, living in days, uh, we're living in an age which is, which is fairly unique in the history of man. Uh, you go back before the 16th century, the 1500s, and, and you look at history and you look at the world scene, and basically what we have are a number of civilizations scattered around the world who basically live in isolation and have very little contact with one another. That changes in the 1500s. How does it change? We have the rise of Western civilization. And through colonialism, Western civilization... And and please understand here, I'm not not critiquing Western civilization. I'm I'm not interested in whether it's good or bad. I'm just stating the facts and how history has unfolded. Western civilization has become the dominant civilization for close to 500 years. And any battles, any conflicts, even the world wars, which we saw in the past last century, these major conflicts that have taken place, they have been essentially confined to Western civilization. Nations, countries within the West competing for resources and wealth and territory and power and all of that. But here's what we have witnessed in the last few decades. We have witnessed the gradual decline of Western civilization and the reemergence of civilizations which have laid dormant for 500 years. And all of a sudden we have this mass of civilizations competing. And so no longer are we restricted to the Western civilization, but we have witnessed the rise of the Islamic civilization, the rise of the Hindu civilization, the rise of the cynic, that is the Chinese civilization, the Latino, the Hispanic civilization, the African civilization. And we now have all of these major civilizations. And here was what perplexes me. There are huge fault lines developing between these civilizations. As people and societies begin to define themselves culturally and on the basis of religion. Sadly, most of our political leaders seem to have their head in the sand as to the reality of the new world order in which we live. We live in the age of civilizations, defined religiously and culturally, and the fault lines are growing. And it worries me. I confess that. It perplexes me. It is confusing. Praise God, I turn to a book like Ezra. I read of a a world empire like, like Assyria. A world empire like Babylon, a world empire like Persia. I read of powerful men like Nebuchadnezzar, powerful men like Cyrus. And I'm reminded of this great and glorious truth. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Christian, believe this. God turns it wherever he will.
Leaders come and leaders go. Countries come, countries go. Empires come, empires go. Civilizations rise, civilizations fall, and the Lord remains. The Lord governing it all. The Lord superintending it all. The Lord accomplishing his perfect will for his people, for his glory, as he will. Understand this first feature of Cyrus's proclamation. The reason. The reason is God. That the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, the second thing of this, about this proclamation I want us to notice is its content. And that brings us to verses 2 through 4. Content is very simple. Cyrus basically allows for two things. Look at verse 3. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Open door policy. You're here in Babylon. You've settled here. You've made your lives here. But look, you can go. You're free to go back. You're free to rebuild the city. You're free to rebuild the temple. Not only that, he allows for this rebuilding by way of support. Verse 4, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this, his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So there's the content of the proclamation. There's the nature. There is an end in view. The reconstruction of God's house in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, which had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And this open door policy whereby any of those people who had been deported to Babylonia could return to their homeland. Now look at how Cyrus prefaces the whole thing. Verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now let's not read more into this than is there. Uh, let, let Let me assert, let me affirm right up front, Cyrus isn't a believer. I referred earlier to Cyrus's cylinder. On that cylinder, Cyrus attributes his victory over Babylon and his world empire to a god of Babylon known as Marduk. Uh, Cyrus is polytheistic. Cyrus has all sorts of gods in his pocket. He's just covering all the bases. And there's a god of that city, a god of that city, a god of that city. Yeah, anybody, you want to go back, rebuild the temples and sanctuaries that we destroyed, hear all the images and artifacts that Nebuchadnezzar had taken, go back, rebuild it, and pray to your gods on behalf of me. Pray to your gods on behalf of this great empire that I am founding. Cyrus is not a believer. But what is interesting to this is this, that even in the words of unbelievers, even in the words of pagan kings, we see elements of great truths. And look at what he says at the outset of verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms the earth. Whether or not he really believed it is inconsequential. It's true. It's a fact. Here is this man, probably unwittingly, probably unconsciously, affirming a great and glorious and essential truth. The Lord is the God of heaven, and the Lord had given him, that is to Cyrus, all the kingdoms of the earth. That phrase, God of heaven, it's it's an interesting description of the Lord. It's employed nine times in the book of Ezra. If you go to the other books in the Old Testament that were penned at the time of the exile, that is this captivity, or shortly after, you'll find that phrase, God of heaven, ten more times. So nine in the book of Ezra, Ten in other books written around the same time period. If you go to the rest of the Old Testament, do you know how many times you find that title? Only four. And so it is a title that emerges. It is a title that arises and is almost unique to, exclusively used during this particular time period. It begs an obvious question. As students of the Word, we should always be asking questions. The question is this, why? 
Why does it emerge now? Why is it popularized now? Remember the context. You have the rise and the fall of a powerful empire, Assyria. You have the rise and the fall of another powerful empire, Babylon. You have the rise and the soon fall of another empire, Persia. Persia will be followed by Greece. Greece will be followed by Rome. All five will be mentioned in Daniel's prophecy. And Daniel's point will be what? That these major world empires represent point to the kingdom of man, which will be usurped by, give way to the ancient of days, and the kingdom of the Son of Man, that is the Son of God Almighty. You see, God is the God of heaven. These are earthly kingdoms. These are human kingdoms. These are passing kingdoms, here today, gone tomorrow. These men are but dust. These are earthly men. These are temporal men, confined to a few years, perhaps a few decades. And yet in the midst of it all, through it all, the Lord is the God of heaven. He made heaven. He resides in heaven, not confined to it. When we say, when we declare, when we affirm He resides in heaven... We mean it is a place where he has chosen to give the fullest manifestation of his glory. And so he made heaven, he resides in heaven, and he rules from heaven. We read in Isaiah 66, the very first one word, uh, verse, the words of the Lord. I, heaven is, he declares, the Lord declares, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What lesson do we derive from this great and magnificent truth? It is simply this. I've summed it up in Isaiah 43, verse 13. God is speaking. I work. And who can turn it back? I work. And who can turn it back? Now, again, I want to direct this lesson, this truth, to a couple of groups of people, some who are probably here today. Uh, The first is this. I want to direct that lesson specifically to the self-assured. Self-assured. A friend, let me cut to the quick, right to the chase. Um, how do you view yourself before this God? How do I perceive myself before the God of heaven? Far too many of us suffer from self-assurance. It's a nice way of saying far too many of us suffer from arrogance. We have a distorted view, a twisted perception of who we are, what we are, before this great and glorious God. There is only one response worthy of this great God. There is only one reaction worthy of this glorious King. And it's summed up in one word. Fear. Matthew Henry, an old commentator, said, Fear, fear of God is so the beginning of wisdom that those who do not know this know nothing. Let me repeat that. The fear of the Lord is so the beginning of wisdom that those who do not know this know nothing. Let me ask you again. What is your perception of yourself before this great and glorious King? This God, this one who declares, I work, who can turn it back? He merits unrivaled fear. He merits unrivaled devotion. He merits unrivaled awe and reverence. How we must humble ourselves before this great God. Secondly, let me speak to the discouraged. When we consider the content of Cyrus's proclamation, and we consider for a moment that uh, he has allowed for the return of the Jews from Babylonia to Jerusalem, we think, oh, this is great, this is fantastic. But then we pause and we look at the, the details and we look at the exact circumstances and we realize that the remnant that returns may be numbers in the tens of thousands. And, and, we, and we're hit with the stark reality of what this nation once was and of what this nation has become. We're struck by the contrast between Israel in, in its halcyon days and the reign of David and Solomon 
And the fact that that entire kingdom has been laid waste, that entire kingdom laid desolate. And now all we have are a few thousand stragglers making their way back from captivity to the promised land to reconstruct something which in its former days was incomparable. And yet we see the God of heaven working, don't we? We see the God of heaven working in accordance with his own eternal plans and purposes for his nation. And we see here confirmation that even in the day of small things, God is accomplishing a great plan. And how that ought to speak to the discouraged in our day. I get discouraged. I get discouraged as I look around at the church. I get discouraged when I hear some of the things that are being taught. I get discouraged when I look at the direction that large segments of the church is heading in. I get discouraged when I look at other countries and see the, the, the persecution and uh, look at some countries and, and you, you'll see you know, 100% Muslim or 100% this, 0% evangelical, no churches, no, no local indigenous testimony as to the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get discouraged. And how we must look away from circumstances and look to the one who rules all things, the God of heaven. A professor years ago uh, spoke these words in a class. His name was Dr. Young, and let me share them with you just to, re- to affirm and to drive home this, this important truth. He declared, in the city of Damascus, in Syria, country of Syria, there is a great mosque which the Muslims regard as one of their most sacred buildings. Along one of the walls of this mosque, there are a number of small shops If you went there, you could ask one of the storekeepers for a stepladder, and he would bring it. Then you could climb up onto the roof, walk right over and touch the wall of the mosque. If you did that, you would find a number of small bushes. Pull back these bushes, and you'd find an old doorway that is all walled up. The whole thing has been whitewashed over. But on the lintel of the doorway, there are these words in the Greek language. Your kingdom, O Christ, is an everlasting kingdom, and your reign endures forever and ever. You see, at one time, this building was a church where the true God was worshipped. The forces of infidelity have all but obliterated the fact that at one time the true God was worshipped in this building. But these words remain to bear their mute yet eloquent testimony. It may seem that the kingdom of the Son of Man has come upon dark days and that it will perish from the face of the earth, but it is not for us to know discouragement. Let us look at the king and remember that we are members of an eternal kingdom In the kingdoms of this world, there is darkness and there is unrest. But in the kingdom of the Son of Man, there is peace and life, light and hope. We worship the Lord, the Lord who is God of heaven. The third feature of Cyrus's proclamation is this, the response. It begins in verse 5. It goes all the way through to the end of chapter chapter 2. The response begins in the fifth verse with God again moving, God acting, doing what? Stirring up those whom he had appointed to return from captivity to Jerusalem. It's the same word that we find back in verse 1, to stir up, that is to awaken. We find it 80 times in the Old Testament. And occasionally it is used to a physical awakening. Someone is asleep physically, they awake, that is they're stirred up. And at times it is used in reference to a spiritual awakening. And this is what we have recorded here in the fifth verse. God is on the move. He is on the move among his people. He is going to fulfill his promise. He is going to accomplish his purposes. His temple will will be rebuilt. His city will be restored. His people are going to return. He's going to accomplish it through their instrumentality. And so he works in their hearts. And he stirs them. And then we have them making that journey at the end of the chapter, verse 11 of chapter 1. All these, the very last statement in the verse, all these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 2, we have this detailed list of families. The names of these families mentioned. The exact numbers given. Such precision. Such a detailed account of the individuals, the exiles, who were stirred up, returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter 2, once they're back, they reside in their own towns. They give freely for the reconstruction of the house of the Lord. 
three things I want us to notice, three very important lessons. The first is this. It's taken from Zechariah 4.6. The Lord declares, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. That's exactly what we have in chapter 1, verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that speaks to a very specific group here. It speaks to the overwhelmed. Anybody feeling overwhelmed today? Overwhelmed by that unsaved spouse. Overwhelmed by that unsaved child. Overwhelmed by that friend, that family member who is self-destructing before your very eyes and you're helpless to do anything about it. Overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. Overwhelmed by what it seems to be the futility of ministry. Overwhelmed by this period of spiritual barrenness that you've entered in and and you're, you're unable to perceive it. You're unable to even figure out when you entered in there or see your way out of it. Overwhelmed. Friend, brother, sister. The answer at all resides in this most precious truth, Zechariah 4, 6. Latch on to this, hold on to this for all you are worth. God declares, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Something many of us need to understand and grasp. Get it? Get it good. It's this. God does not call us to be successful. God does not call you to be successful. God has not called you or me to change the world. Uh, God has not called us to do something spectacular that will be recorded on the pages of history for a posterity to read and learn of. No, you know what God has called you to? You know what God has called me to? He has called us to be faithful. That is it, friend. That is all God calls his people to be. He calls us to be faithful. He has given you what he has given you to do. He has given me what he has given me to do. Great or small in the eyes of men, great in the eyes of the Lord. And although at times our lives, we feel overwhelmed. And at times in the midst of ministry, we feel overwhelmed. Like the floodwaters are rushing over us. We have this great absolute certainty. We have this absolute promise to which we can look, from which we must not waver. God says, it is not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. What a comfort to the overwhelmed. Second lesson is this. From John 10, verse 14, the words of the Lord. I know my own, and my own know me. How do we get that out of the text? It's written all over chapter 2. You read that list of names later this afternoon. You see the detail there, the heads of families mentioned by name specifically, the exact number of each family counted and recorded, all here in detail, speaking to what? This wonderful, unchangeable truth, that God, the one who is the God of heaven, is intimately acquainted with his people. There's a group of people here right now who need to hear that. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of the ashamed. The ashamed. Uh, Conviction is good, nothing wrong with it. Shame is good, nothing wrong with it. Feeling the burden of our sin is good, nothing wrong with it. As long as it drives us to the foot of the cross. The problem is this. Is when we can see nothing but our sin and guilt. The problem is this. Is when we wallow in our shame. The issue is this, is when even as believers, we constantly look to the past and rather than surrendering it to the Lord, yes, feeling the guilt of it, but understanding that in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is absolute and perfect forgiveness. We relive, we revisit, and these things are like chains holding us, weighing us down, pulling us backwards how we need to grab onto, latch onto this wonderful lesson. I know my own, and my own know me. Doesn't God know everyone? Yes, he knows of everyone. He knows about everyone. That's not what the Lord Jesus is speaking of in John 10. What does the Lord Jesus mean when he says that he knows his own? 
he means he is intimately acquainted with his own. Now, that word is used in other contexts in Scripture. Same idea. It's used of the conjugal relationship between husband and wife. So Adam knew Eve. Abraham knew Sarah. You see, it denotes intimacy. Paul declares in Romans 8 that God foreknew us. doesn't mean he simply looked down the corridors of time and had some general vague notion of our existence. He foreknew us, meaning he was intimately acquainted with us before the foundation of the world, meaning he had set his love on us in Christ Jesus before time began. Christian, understand this. Let me repeat it. Get it, and please get it good. God loved you before you breathed your first breath, Christian, in Christ. God loved you when he saw you wallowing in your sin, called you by his grace, and you heard the gospel and the light went on. And God loves you now as you struggle with your sin and as you confess your sin and as you see yourself and the veil is is, is removed from your eyes and you see yourself as you really are, the darkness of your heart and your idolatry. Understand this, please. His love for his own does not change because it cannot change because it is a love that is rooted in Christ. Get it, get this, please. The Lord Jesus does not love me because I'm lovely. He loves me because he is lovely. And I am one with the Lord Jesus Christ. Before time began, in accordance with God's electing grace and purpose for me, while I was wallowing in my sin and muck and mire and filth, his love was fixed upon me. When he called me by converting sovereign, saving grace, his love was on me, and his love is on me still. God does not love the lovable. God does not love us because we're all dressed up, prim and proper, and lovely. He loves us because his Son is unspeakably. Lovely. Wonderful illustration of that back in the Old Testament. Uh, David wanted to know if anyone was still alive of the family of Jonathan, didn't he? He found one, a cripple, Mephibosheth. He did not love Mephibosheth because Mephibosheth was particularly endearing. He didn't set his love on Mephibosheth because of anything to do with Mephibosheth. He loved him, why? For the sake of Jonathan. Christian, that is why God loves us. It is for the sake of Christ. Jesus declares, I know my own, and my own know me. Timothy Keller sums it up well. The gospel is this. This is for believers. This should encourage the ashamed. If you're not a believer, this should encourage you and compel you to prostrate yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy Keller declares, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Let me repeat that. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. That is the lesson. I know my own. Here's a list of God's people. Inconsequential now. But God intimately acquainted with each one of them. Christian, God right now is intimately acquainted with you and every detail of your life. Here's the wonderful thing. He is intimately acquainted with me and every detail of my life. Are you ready for this? He loves me anyway because I am in Christ who is exceedingly lovely in God's sight. Third lesson is this. The words of the Lord Jesus from Luke 4 verse 18. He, God, has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. So what we have here in Ezra, chapters 1 and 2, is a pagan king, Cyrus, and yet anointed by God, used by God to utter, issue a proclamation. A proclamation by which those who were captive in Babylon were liberated and set free to return to Jerusalem. We have a mirror here, something that projects into the Lord's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his own words has been sent to proclaim 
liberty to the captives. We are not captive to some world system. We are not captive to some, to some man, to some empire. We are not captive in some, some earthly kingdom. We are in bondage to our own sin. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ has entered time. The Lord Jesus Christ has entered the world scene 2,000 years ago. And the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross has borne the curse for our sin that we might go free. A contemporary preacher has said that Christ on the cross is the most grotesque and most obscene mass of concentrated sin in the history of the world. Think of it. On the cross, the Lord's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is exceedingly lovely in the eyes of God, becomes the most grotesque and most obscene mass of concentrated sin in the history of the world. Why? Because our sin is imputed to him. And as he hangs between heaven and earth, and as he experiences hell in his soul and that separation from his father, he becomes a curse, bearing our judgment. And now he declares what? Liberty to the captive. See, if you're not a Christian, you are a prisoner right now. You are in captivity right now. Whether you acknowledge it or not, have any sense of it or not, you are, according to the word of God, you are in bondage to sin. And you are in bondage to God's judgment. And there is only one way by which we can be set free. It is through the one who has paid the penalty. And the one who now offers sinners forgiveness. The one who offers enemies peace. The one who offers prisoners liberty. We sang these words earlier. Let me conclude with them. Mercy, there was great and grace was free. Pardon, there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Our Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory this day. Give you all the glory as we contemplate the wonder of your word and how it speaks directly to the condition of man. Give you the glory as we contemplate uh, the marvelous sacrifice of your son, the Lord Jesus, who laid down his life for us. And our Father, with a sense of urgency, we do intercede on behalf of those unbelievers here this day and ask that you would awaken them by your spirit, stir them by your spirit as you have done throughout history and throughout the centuries. Call them by your grace. Show them their sinfulness and cause them to run to the foot of the cross where they find forgiveness abounding grace and abounding mercy. We ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom. We ask it for the glory of your Son, in whose most precious name we pray. Amen.